you'd open your Bibles to the book of Luke chapter 13. Luke chapter 13, we're going to be looking at verses 10 through 21 as the plan. Uh, we may not get all the way through. It's a lot of text. We'll see. Um, we're in a transition verse. This is the last time that Jesus is preaching in the synagogue in his earthly ministry. We're only a few months from his uh, the cross, and he continues. He's continuing to get to feel the weight of the, the cross as he approaches. He, he has just finished his last sermon in the book of Luke. This started all the way back in uh, Luke chapter 12, verse 1, and went through Luke 13, verse 9. In the sermon, he begged and pleaded with people that they were would fo follow, that they were following him to repent and believe. Time and time again, he told them not to trust the works of their leaders, the Pharisees, because they couldn't save them. He told them not to trust the, that they were born, the, the, the birthright that they were born into. Because no birthright could save anyone. He told them that they, there was a way of salvation, but the time was short. They must deal with it lest they run out of time. Jesus, in this last few months of his ministry, the cross was looming heavy in the near future. And we find ourselves this morning the last time that Jesus is teaching in a synagogue on his earthly ministry. In this story, we're going to see three things. First, the favor of Christ. He's preaching in the synagogue. He's been invited there by the, the synagogue ruler. They didn't have pastors or they were over, over it. They had a lay board of elders. They were over and they'd invite different traveling preachers to come and expound the word. And as he's in the middle of explaining this Old Testament text, a woman walks in. He's disabled. And he looks at her and he has compassion on her. Didn't leave her in the back where they, they all the women would be in that day. He didn't ha have anger with her that, that most of the Jews had because they had a theology of that, that, uh, th that she was in such dire straits because of her own sin. The Job theology. But he had favor on her. He called her forward and healed her. Next, we're going to see the fury and the fallacy of the religious. The fury and the fallacy of the religious. The ruler of the synagogue used this to accuse Jesus. He, he, he had invited Jesus in to expose the text of Scripture. And Jesus had the audacity of interrupting their liturgy, their order of worship. Interestingly enough, we'll get into this later, he accused Jesus of breaking a law that didn't exist. In the Jewish society, nor in the Jewish in the Jewish camp. And the final thing we're going to see is the future of the kingdom. Finally, Jesus ends by comparing the kingdom of God to two things that both start small and yet end up being pervasively large and going through everywhere. Just as the woman had been healed in the uh, uh, healed, the kingdom of God would bring life and hope. To all that are in it. The title of the sermon is A Little Leaven. Stand with me as we honor the reading of God's word. Luke chapter 13, starting in verse 10. Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And behold, there was a woman who had had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. 
When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are free from your disability. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight. And she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant, because Jesus was, had healed on the Sabbath. And so he said to the people, there are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days to be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. Then the Lord answered him, you hypocrites, do not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox and his donkey from the manger and lead it away to, to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from the bond on the Sabbath day? As he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at all the glories that they were, that were done by him. He said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree. And the birds of the air made nests in its branches. And he said again, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in, th in three measures of flour until all was leavened. This is the word of God that has been preserved for your edification and for the glory of God. Receive it as such. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, you are good and you are worthy of being praised. Father, I pray that we would see this text, this familiar passage, with new light. That you would open our eyes by the power of your spirit and that you would show us mercy this morning as we expose it. Father, I pray that your spirit would be with me. That you would let, allow your spirit to speak through me. And it would not be me, but your spirit. Come, spirit. Father, we love you. It's in your precious son's name, my friend. Amen. So I love animals, but I don't really understand the whole idea of the fur babies thing. We have plenty of pets in our house, much more now than we used to, but I would never place them anywhere near the level of a family member. And there's a reason for that, both practically and theologically. Practically, I care a lot more about every part of my family than I do about any of my pets. Even the weird drunk uncle that only we only see on rare occasions, now we all have them, I would choose to save them over any of my pets a hundred times over and twice on Sunday. Why? That, that's how we get, why we get to the theological reason for it. The theological reason lines up directly with this because theologically only humans are created in the image of God. And therefore, they have an inherent value that is much greater than any other creature. Far too often in our culture, we confuse the priorities of family. We confuse the priorities of a lot of things. Because far too often we put pets and animals and anything we can think of up at the same level as family or people in general. This morning, in this synagogue, uh, in this synagogue ruler has the same type of flawed priorities, as we'll see. Let's dive into the text. First, we're going to see the favor of Christ. Starting in verse 10. 
Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. Now, the, this is the last record. I told said this twice already. But this is the last recorded teaching of in a synagogue before the cross, only a few months before. And that's, it's important to know that because the synagogue and the temple are very different. The temple is where you go to make sacrifices. The synagogue was specifically the place of learning. It was a place where you would go to hear the word preached, to hear the word exposed or expounded or exposited. It would be explained, the text. And in most of these synagogues, there were well over 300 in the little town of Galilee in, in, in Jerusalem. And there were, there were all these small synagogues, much like we have churches today, where people would come specifically to hear the word of God explained. Now, it wasn't quite the same as we have today. It was formed of a board of elders uh, that would, would control the liturgy. The liturgy is the flow of worship. They, they, would, they would go through. If you look at your bulletin, we have a liturgy. The call to worship, the call to repentance, the call to glorify God, the call to the word, and the call to response. We have a liturgy that is in that we follow as well. Well, they, the, the elders of the synagogue were, in, were responsible for the liturgy. And part of the liturgy was the call of the word. And so they would, they would ask or invite different preachers, different rabbis to come and talk about the word. So this specific ruler of the, of the synagogue, it was his turn to do it. He asked Jesus was in the area. Jesus was the, the, the big thing of, of the, the talk of the town. It was the next big thing. He invited him to come. Now, we don't really know why he invited him to come because most of the synagogue rulers, most of the Pharisees were already furious at Jesus. So there's really two possibilities as to why he would have invited Jesus. One is because he was trying to figure it out. He was still ambivalent. He was still on the fence of who this Jesus was. And he wanted to see for himself uh, all that he had said he people had said he'd done. Two, which I kind of lean towards, is that he was trying to trap him. He was trying to, to make him stumble and catch him in lying or catch him in a false interpretation or catch him in something. And as we get into this, we'll see exactly where he tries to catch him. So in the middle of Jesus' teaching, the liturgy is going on. He's expounding upon the text, preaching it, and a woman walks in. Goes to the right hand of the back, right hand side of the synagogue. That's where all the women sat back then because Back then, it, it was a very sexist society, and women and men were separated, and anyone with a disability was separated. And so this woman walks in, completely keeled over. People have tried to say what exactly this disease was. That, that <coughs> It doesn't really matter. Jesus, said, uh, Jesus says, and Luke says, it was Satan. <coughs> and so she was, for 18 years, she was walking like that. She could barely see in front of her. And she walks in, and Jesus is sitting down and preaching, and he sees him. And he stops. And look at verse 11. It says, And behold, there was a woman who had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. This is a severe disease that we're told is caused by Satan, by a demon. And she was bent in two. Not only was it strange to look at, but it would have been excruciatingly painful. The woman would have been an outcast of the society because of the prevailing theology in the Jewish people and 
today, for a lot of people, is that the only reason you have really bad problems is because of your own sickness, your own sinfulness. And so this woman who had been bent over for 18 long years, she must have done something really, really bad. Today, they, we have the same type of theology out there. It's called the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. If you've been here for any amount of time, which everyone here has, I think, they've heard me talk about it. It says that the only reason you have sin in your life, the only reason you're not healthy, wealthy, and prosperous is, or not sin in your life, the only reason you're not healthy, wealthy, and prosperous is because you have sin in your life. And if you would just rid yourself of that sin, you would be a lot better. Big names that preach this kind of nonsense. Kenneth Copeland, Joel Osteen, Joyce Myers, among the well-known Preachers that preach this kind of thing. They preach that if you would just stop sinning, God would give you so much. It's, it's, just, it's outside of the biblical narrative. If you look at what happened to Jesus, if you look at what happened to Paul, if you look at what happened to any of the 12 disciples, 11 out of 12 were murdered for their faith. And the one who wasn't was abandoned on an island. Patmos gave us the book of Revelation. The biggest problem with this is it goes completely contrary to Scripture. And yet it prevails 2,000 years later. The Jews of that day would have rejected and isolated from this woman because of this exact theology. We don't know why she was there, but culturally I can say with pretty certainty that she wasn't there often. She would not have been welcomed in the synagogue. And so Jesus... We're going to contrast here in a moment Jesus' reaction to the religious reaction. Contrast the rejection of the religious of that day to the compassion of Christ in verse 12. Let's look at verse 12. When Jesus saw her out there, she entered this synagogue. She, she was bent over, seated in the back right corner. The compassion of the Lord to stop one of the things that was most important for the Jewish culture and for Jesus, for Jesus, the preaching of his word, the expounding of the scriptures was one of the most important things he would ever do. It's one of the reasons he came here. And it says, in the middle of this, Jesus saw her. You see the love of You see the love of Christ that he, he would stop preaching of the word to heal this compassion of our Lord. It's unbelievable. When, when Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, woman, you're free. You're loosed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her and immediately she was made straight. Now he did two things. First he proclaimed it, then he touched her and it healed her. He looked at her and called her in front of the entire crowd of people that despised her and pronounced her free. He said, woman, you are free from your disability. This is what happens when we turn to Christ. Now, I'm jumping ahead here, but this is a, a picture of the salvation that occurs when we are converted. When we are converted from death to life, we are taken from a disability that we can do nothing about for 18 long years. This woman has dealt with this disability. She's been plagued by Satan, it tells us. And Jesus looks at her. 
And he says, you're freed. This is exactly what happens to our soul when we, when we repent and believe, when we, we are converted, when we have the new birth. We are, we're freed from our, from our sins. All the woman brought was her disability. And all we bring is our sin, our need, our, our need for a Savior. And our Lord saves us from it. And the Word, and with the Word, we are healed. She was healed from physical, we're healed from spiritual. She was a slave to her disability. She couldn't see but a few inches in front of her face. We were a slave to sin. We could never please God. She was dis displaced from her people, was now reconciled. We were displaced from God, and we have been made, we've been healed and brought into his, his loving family. The compassion of Christ is what freed her, and the compassion of Christ is what frees us. Do you see that? But it, it has freed us to something. Not just from sin, not just from her disability, but it's freed us to something. Look at the, the end of verse 13. And she glorified God. He, she was free, both physically and spiritually, to bring God glory. Listen, when, when Jesus heals, it is primarily about bringing God glory. When Jesus saves, it is primarily about bringing God glory. This woman, crippled and abandoned for 18 years, has now been set free. And the first thing she does is running. It's not jumping. It's not stretching her legs. It's not using the, the legs and her spines like they're made to be used. But her first act when she's been made straight is to kneel before God and glorify Him. She spent 18 years bent over. She's healed, and she starts worshiping God. Never let the amazement of your freedom wear off or wear thin. He has done more for you than for this woman. This woman is, is healed physically. We're never told that she had faith. We're just told she brought, brought glory to him. We have been healed by the mighty hand of Christ. We have been brought out of death into life. We've been made children of God where we would inherit his kingdom. But not everyone in this situation was glorifying God. As often happens, even if God is being glorified, if their tradition and their expectations are erupted, the religious get mad. They get indignant. I bring that home for you. Before we move on, if, if the church today doesn't look like it did when we grew up, but God's been glorified, it's our job to glorify God. If the, if the songs aren't sung, if the prayers aren't maybe the same, as long as the scriptures preach and God is glorified, it's our job to worship him. Not be like this ruler. The ruler wanted none, none of it. We'll see the second point. The fury and the fallacy of the religious. The fury and the fallacy of the religious. Start in verse 14. But the ruler of the synagogue indignant. Now, it, it, it's amazing in the, in the original language, in the Greek. It, 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 there's nothing else to describe it. But the ruler of the synagogue indignant, furious. 
He invited this traveling preacher. Maybe it was to trap him. Maybe it was because he wasn't fully sold on the fact that he was terrible. But he invites this guy here, and he has the audacity to change up our worship service. He has the audacity to change up how we do things. And not only bring, he not only changes it up, but he brings forward a woman that had been a cast out. He brings forward and breaks all the Sabbath laws. The made up ones in his head, at least. It says here, the ruler of the synagogue indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath. Said to the people, there are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days to be healed and not on the Sabbath day. Now it's really important, I said this earlier, this was not an actual Sabbath law. Neither in the rabbinical teachings of that they had 700 plus laws for the Sabbath. It wasn't anywhere in there. Why? Because most people couldn't do healing miracles. So they didn't have a law for this. That's why if you look at it carefully, he says there are six days in which work ought to be done. So he was, he was trying to classify this miracle of healing under the idea of work that was in the rabbinic teaching, but not in the, well, it was in the scriptural teaching too. But he was, he was trying to classify this new law and thereby catch Jesus. He was furious with, with Jesus. Now, one of the two things, like I said, I lean towards that this this and we will ultimately know, but I lean towards that this synagogue ruler was trying, had invited Jesus here, just like the Pharisee had done in the past, to catch Jesus in sin. And here's why. Right here. He makes up, he makes up this reason to shame Jesus in front of him. Now, ultimately, we don't know. It could have been. He was mad about, he, he was simply mad about the, the liturgy being torn apart. But for someone to make up a new rule, for someone to make up a new rule specifically to put someone to shame, that takes forth. Well, let's look here. Note, notice who he's indicting here. He doesn't primarily indict Jesus. Who's he talking to? He's talking to the people, but he's talking about the woman. And secondarily, he's talking to Jesus. He says, how dare you? This is the Sabbath. One of the Ten Commandments is to keep the Sabbath holy. And you said, stop the preaching of the word to heal this outcast, this worthless person that is obviously stuck in sin, and you're healing her in the middle of our holy day. So the Lord answered him. This is the first time Luke calls Jesus the Lord. The response is, going to reveal the animosity of the rulers and some within the crowd. He says, you hypocrite. Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox? And that, that word untie is important. That untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead them away to water? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, the original language has a, an emphasis there. 18 long years to be loosed from the bond on the Sabbath day. He called him a hypocrite. Why? Because you would go and you're trying to keep the Sabbath, but you're going to loose, untie your donkey. 
If I was a little more profane, I'd give them the actual name. You would lose, you would lose your donkey to go feed it. But you don't want to lose the daughter of Abraham, a child of God, a, 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 a daughter of the king. You won't be loose her from her, 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 her tithe from Satan. What's wrong with you? There's no law here that he's broken. He's come to free. He's come to heal. And he did it. Even on the Sabbath, he did it. The problem that this, this, Pharisee, or this ruler of the synagogue had is a mixture, mix-up of priorities. Should we take the, that he wasn't only asking her, him there to accuse him? He's, he's trying to, to keep his liturgy tight. He's trying to do what he thinks is right. But in so doing, he's overlooking a much greater priority. You are to take care of God's people. Even on the Sabbath, to heal. What better day to heal than on the Sabbath? This mix-up of priorities we have all throughout our culture. I, I watch Shark Tank a lot. And on Shark Tank, especially kids my age and younger, they always have a cause they're doing something for. Save the whale. Save the seal. Save the seaweed. I don't know. Save whatever may be in danger. But... And they're, they're applauded from, for it. They're applauded for the, a heart toward, for nature and a heart for, for, the, for animals. But here in America alone, since abortion has been legalized, over 68 million babies have been aborted. And yet, many are silent. I'm accused of being silent. I have been silent too much. The CDC came out with records saying that, that every 96 seconds, 96 seconds, a boy, a baby is terminated. And yet we care about the water, the seaweed, the lambs, the, the cattle, whatever else. I don't care. Whatever we put ahead of that, we're just doing the same thing the synagogue ruler does. Why? Because when we see that, what we're seeing is an absolute execution of babies. And yet, we're willing to get on, maybe not those in this room, but America in general is willing to, to get on board with all these, these crusades to save X, Y, and Z. But don't you dare mention that. Lord, help us, God. Lord, help this country. Because the more we, 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 the further we continue to do that and claim to be close to Christ, the further the lie we, we make ourselves. This ruler was furious because his order of worship was thrown off. We get furious when we see that dogs are abused and seals are abused. But it's almost become natural in our day to see Planned Parenthood left open in this pandemic. Lord help us. Let's keep going. The third, the third point, the future of the kingdom. Here's the hope, here's the joy. Verse 18. He said, therefore, 
So he's talking and using the example of this woman that was healed in the synagogue on the Sabbath. Therefore, what is the kingdom of God like? If this, is, if this is what God does, if this is what Jesus does, our Lord does, he heals, he, he brings new life. Therefore, what is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare? He's showing the future and the hope in these analogies. He gives two analogies. The mustard seed, we were used to that one. And leaven, we're used to that one as well. Let's look at them. Verse 19. It is like a grain of mustard seed. Then a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew up and became a tree. Now, specifically here, this is, was back then and is today, the smallest of a garden seed. Notice that the word there. There are all sorts of people that say, well, it's not the smallest seed. No, it's not, but it's the smallest garden seed. And it produces to be the biggest of the garden seeds. And he says something here that's just amazing. This garden plant grows large enough for birds to make their home, their nest in its branches. That's the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God, which starts small, which starts persecuted, which starts being tossed around by every, every single uh, empire that ruled, will eventually grow big enough to be the comfort for many, then big enough for people to make their homes this glorious kingdom of God. Second thing he says is, and again he said, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? He said this, it is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until all was leaven. Now last time Luke talked about leaven was with the Pharisees in the beginning of Luke chapter 12. He said, Jesus said, beware the leaven of the Pharisees. And if you remember that, it's the leaven is that which permeates and corrupts the entirety of the dough. So back then, in the beginning of chapter 12, he was talking about corruptness, evil that was permeating and spreading through. But here, he's talking about the same qualities, but with a different start. The kingdom of God is like Leaven, with just a small amount of leaven, it pervades the entire love. God uses a small amount of faith and trust to change you completely. He doesn't just change you on Sunday morning. He doesn't just change you for Wednesday night. He changes every aspect of your life. A small amount, a small amount of the kingdom of God. When we repent and believe, we're not left the same. We're not left to be the same old people. But we are recreated as new creatures. The leaven of the kingdom of God will pervade every corner of our life. That we would glorify him. It will lead us to love that which God loves and hate that which God hates. Beloved, as we close this part of the service, I want to encourage you, never let anything get in the way of the greatest purpose that God has given us, and that's to bring God glory, whether it be our traditions, whether it be, whether it be our frustrations, no matter what it would be, never let anything get in the way of the leaven of the gospel per, per, permeating every area of our life. Don't let it stay here. In these walls. Don't let it even stay in your family unit. But preach the gospel. And present the kingdom of God. Because it's the work of the spirit that changes hearts. 
And he too, just as he made this woman healed, can heal us and can heal our friends and can heal our family, can heal our nation. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, you are good and you are so worthy to be praised. Father, I pray that as we prepare our hearts and our minds to take this communion, to remember, to remember your sacrifice on the cross. Father, I pray that you would show us your mercy here today. Father, you would guide us. You would call us to repent of our sins and to love you. It's in your precious son's name I pray. Amen. Now, if you haven't gotten the communion cup, they're in the back. Um, it's a little different today, so I'm going to show you now what to do. We're going to, I'm going to explain some things, and we're going to play, uh, play There is a Fountain. And I want to take that time where we're not going to be passing them out. I want you guys to pray. I want you guys to sing. I want you guys to, to focus your mind on what communion is. Communion is a, a ritual, but it's a ritual for the Christian. It's a ritual for those that have come and repented and believed and been baptized. It's for those who have, have surrendered to Christ as Lord. The scripture says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body to witness which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So I, I'm going to teach you guys how to do this. And so there's a little flap on top. You're going to take that little flap and unfold it. And there's your wafer. Now later, we're going to pull that other one and pull the juice out. I want you to take this time before we take up the bread. I want to take, take this time as we sing our prayer to get our hearts right, to get our hearts focused on what we're doing as we take this communion. Let us sing again.
take this in remembrance of me. Mama, I really the same way as we remember the sacrifice of Christ, we take the blood, the juice, which represents the blood of Christ, and we remember the blood that was spilt for Son's in my prayer. Amen.